This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions show, and salut Babette. Andy and I would like to pay our respects to the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation upon whose land we are broadcasting at Radio 3CR and to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation in Sydney where we're broadcasting at Radio Skid Row. Tonight you'll hear Craig Roycastle talking about the fight for Planet A which was that uh, three-part TV series he made for the ABC and Damon Garrow who made the film 2040. We'll also hear from forest campaigner Jess Panagiris, who is now an environmental philanthropy manager, and Imogen Jubb, who's the manager of Zero Carbon Communities. The MC is Amy Meehan, a First Nations person and climate leader in the Hunter Valley. Thank you also to Mark Spencer from Climactic Podcasts, who helped me with this podcast. Welcome everyone to our monthly discussion group for Beyond Zero Emissions. My name is Amy Meehan and I will be your host for this exciting Fight for Planet A event. I'm a Milleroy Irish Australian living in the Hunter Valley, New South Wales and I volunteer for Beyond Zero Emissions Hunter Region. The format for this evening is that each of our panellists will take a turn to talk about their approach to climate action and respond to the newest work uh, Fight for Planet A on ABC and iView. I'd like to take a moment to acknowledge and be thankful to the wisdom and care of our ancestors and custodians past and present on whatever Indigenous country in Australia you are tonight. I'm thankful for the ancestors on the Warramai land that I grew up on and the Wanarua land where I now live and work. I thank my ancestors and elders for the values of gender parity, uh, natural localised democracy, of not only people but all creatures without a voice through totemic systems and song lines. I thank them for caring for this land for 120,000 years, despite unresolved sovereignties. I also want to thank Beyond Zero Emissions and our speakers Craig, Damon, Jess and Imogen for honouring the Uluru Statement by including a First Nations voice here tonight. All voices from Australia's diverse and multicultural communities are needed. And each time I do an acknowledgement, um, my learnings have changed. But one thing I have resolved on is to also acknowledge another minority, and that is our coal, oil and gas workers, and the communities like the Hunter, who are actually dependent on fossil and hydrocarbon economies. We have all benefited from the energy and technology of their work, and so I hope that together we can sympathise with and support their challenges as well as our own. So let's get started. Our first speaker is Craig Rewcastle, writer and host of the newest TV series and the reason why we're, we've been drawn to this event, perhaps, Fight for Planet A on ABC. Known so well for his various comic stunts on The Chaser, humorous education of our consumer rights on The Checkout and, of course, the series that kicked off uh, his environmental focus, The War on Waste. Craig is also a visual quantifier using stunts that demonstrate the extent of our impact uh, that many of us would not even know about otherwise. And somehow he packages it all to include a huge belly laugh. So please welcome 
Craig Rewcastle. Thank you very much, Amy. I'd like to acknowledge that I'm on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Thank you for having me here today to talk about this. The Five Planet Day was a show we really wanted to address because I think Warren Waste was successful, but we started to see waste was kind of getting conflated with climate issues, not just by the general public, but also at the level of Prime Minister. We'd see our Prime Minister go to the United Nations to a climate summit and talk about plastic and that kind of thing. So we really wanted to get people to engage with it. And it's a difficult one. It's a much more difficult thing to engage with. And I think we had a sense of there were a lot of misconceptions out there. It's interesting how many people have come up to me since the show went to and go, I thought we were one of the best, which still blows me away. We think of Australia as being this beautiful nation, having such great wilderness and that kind of thing, that people conflated that with we must be really good when it comes to climate change, rather than the reality, of course, which is that we're one of the worst when it comes to climate change in the world. What I wanted to start off doing in that show was probably much broader and it became much narrower because we had to deal with a lot of misconceptions that are out there. Firstly, whether or not Australia is bad or has a lot to do. And secondly, I think the biggest misconception that we're all battling against is the misconception that we can't make a difference. It's the actual narrative that's been set up by our government for many years is that Australia can't really make a difference. We're quite small. We're 1.3%. We're tiny. We can't make a difference, which is an argument that falls down on so many levels, uh, particularly when you look at our overall footprint per person, but also when you look at the fact that we're still kind of top 20 polluters in the world when it comes to this. But it's interesting how that narrative also is the same one that we often use as individuals. You can be somebody who rails against the government and says, no, we should be doing something as a government, but still go, well, I can't do anything. And we wanted to also look at whether you could do anything as well as an individual, and not, not as an individual, but as one of many. I think that's the tough thing is in the same way that Australia says, we're really small. You go, yeah, but if all those small nations together are the biggest part of our contribution to emissions. It was much the same way as you go, <clears throat> but I'm just an individual. Yes, but all of us individuals together are a massive part of our footprint, so we can actually make a difference, hopefully, in some way to that. So, yeah, when we're talking about ideas and opportunities, it's interesting. This year has been, I think, a really challenging one. And hello to anyone who's watching this from Melbourne. I know you guys are in the middle of a terrible time, but I think it's been a terribly challenging time for so many of us. But I think it has brought some opportunities up. Like, it's been interesting to... There were brief periods where this year we've kind of found ourselves working together across party lines, listening to experts, being told that what we do matters in solving a problem. And it's an interesting model that might also be successful for actually tackling climate change. So I think there's hopefully some positives that we've got out of that. I think there's a big problem as well. I think there's a very intentional ploy at the moment by certain people slash ministers of government to equate the drop in emissions that's happening with the lockdown and with COVID and suggest, see, you do get drop emissions, but it's when you're locked in your house and when you don't have economic activity and when you lose your jobs and that kind of thing. <clears throat> and that's the narrative that's been used for so many years to deny activity in this area. And it's so good to see BZE has been out at the forefront talking about the fact, no, we're at a point now where we can get so many jobs, we can get so much activity, we can still be having the positives of cleaner air and lower emissions and all of these kind of things whilst also having people in jobs and extra jobs and that kind of thing. And I think that's the really big challenge that we have is to try and make people see that. And I think it's, it's great that things like the million jobs is, a, is an example of that, to get people actually to, to work on that. Because it is, there's so many great opportunities there. There's so many technologies there now that we can really answer a, a lot of the challenges that we face. I'm not a scientist, but the reason I'm not a scientist doing this show is because the problem is not in science. 
my background is in political science, and that's where the problem is. The problem is in politicians and us as people. That's where the actual problem is. And we're now in a position where I think we really can solve this problem. And it's exciting. Whether it's be at the home level, you can do so much. The community can do so much. Schools can do so much. Businesses. And the interesting thing about this is I've changed my concept of how, you know, change comes about. It doesn't just generally come from the top and from the federal government. It probably is going to come from all of those groups underneath making change. And then finally they'll join in at the end and take credit for it, no doubt but we can still hopefully get that change there. So there are a lot of great opportunities there, and it's been great to see people coming up and saying, we think we can make a difference. It's so important. It's important that we all all get behind this and listen to the experts here tonight so that we can actually make a change for this. So cheers. Thanks for that, Craig, and thanks for the laughs and the thought of your wonderful work and the team at the ABC as well. And may the stories and laughs continue to motivate our path. And now I'll introduce our next speaker is Damon Gamow, who is a positive vision documentary maker who has extended the impact of his film's work with a Facebook group and support of regenerative initiatives shown in the film. Damon is known for two of the top four highest grossing Australian documentaries in history, That Sugar Film and the most recent film, of course, 2040. This year, Damon was nominated for the New South Wales Australian of the Year Award for his 2040 Regeneration Movement. Please welcome Damon Gamow. Thank you, Amy. And I'd like to acknowledge that I am on the lands of the Bundjalung Nation of the Arakwal people and pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging. And just wanted to acknowledge Craig and all his team and Stephen Oliver and everyone at ABC for putting on such a terrific show that has reached a really wide audience and More than ever, we need storytellers that are disseminating this science and putting it in ways that are accessible and entertaining and that we try and permeate the culture with it instead of just leaving it in these academic circles. So congratulations to everyone there. I thought I might just quickly explain for a lot of people that might be on the panel tonight that are quite new to climate change or just understanding the complexities of some of it. Uh, I think we all know that we need to stop putting fossil fuels into the atmosphere. That's why we talk a lot about shutting down coal power stations and switching to renewables. Some people might not be aware that even if we did that tomorrow, if we all went to renewable energy, we all had electric cars and they were all run by renewables, we've still locked ourselves into centuries of warming because of the greenhouse gases that are already in the atmosphere. So while we stop putting them up there, we also need to take them out of the atmosphere at the same time, and that is known as sequestration or drawing down carbon dioxide. But the third area that often doesn't get talked about is the fact that we need to preserve the areas that already have carbon in them right now. There's around 2 trillion metric tonnes of carbon stored in our forests and in our wetlands and in our peat bogs and in our mangroves. And if we just released only 10% of those, we would see our parts per million go up by 100. So it's really important that all those three things have to happen simultaneously for us to have a shot of getting through this. And as I'm sure Jess will probably talk to this in a second, we think of deforestation and we all think of the Amazon and we think of Indonesia, but Australia is doing appallingly in terms of our deforestation, especially in Queensland, New South Wales. So even if we do get to these renewables and lower our emissions, it's really kind of we're chasing our tail if we're continuing to cut down these forests and put more carbon into the atmosphere, affect the water cycle of the planet, which has a huge impact as well. So it's just important to understand this is not a simple problem. People call it a wicked problem for a reason because all these things have to happen at the same time. That said, though, I would say there are some really wonderful things going on. That's what I've spent the last five years of my life 
trying to find the solutions, trying to find and meet the people that are doing their best to get these problems solved. And even though we don't probably get the leadership we need in this country at a federal level, we often pull our hair out because we don't have a clear climate policy, we don't have a clear energy target, we're talking about a gas-led recovery right now, which is kind of madness, that there are wonderful things going on, especially the state level, community level, schools. I think all of our states now have pledged goals of 2050 to be zero emissions. And some of those states will get there even faster. Uh, South Australia, for example, will probably get there by 2030. Tasmania have pledged to be 200% renewables by 2040. And we see only recently that New South Wales, their Liberal Environment Minister, has created some renewable energy zones, which are going to power millions of homes in New South Wales. And only last week, the Victorian Energy Minister pledged that they are going to rebuild after COVID with lots of renewable energy investment. So there are good stories happening, even if we're not getting at the federal level. Uh, and again, globally, there is just so much momentum in terms of renewables right now. There was a report even out today that said of all the new energy capacity that we built right around the world last year, 67% of that was solar and wind, and only 25% of it was fossil fuels. So there is huge shift. All the big investment companies, the Goldman Sachs, BlackRock, these kind of groups aren't investing in fossil fuels anymore. So there is definitely a transition underway, but there's still a lot to do. We're still investing far too much in polluting industries and technologies, SUVs, these types of things, so we do have to do that work. But really, as I said, if we stop doing that, we all go to renewables, we're still going to deal with this carbon that's already in our atmosphere. And I think as we export in 2040, one of the most exciting areas we can do that is in biological solutions. So in regenerative agriculture, for example, right now our agriculture industry emits huge amounts of carbon dioxide and the way we dig and plough our soils, remove those trees but we're also putting lots of chemicals on our land. We're losing the water in our landscape, so it's really a great time to start regenerating those. And there's just some really exciting things going on from farmers around the world, different initiatives now around planting agroforestry or planting trees that we can eat. There's now about 600 perennial vegetables that we can eat and plant that have huge nutrition, but they're also sequestering huge amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere. So we really need to rethink some of our food system, move away from these monocultures, just planting rows and rows of soy or corn or sugar and really look at diverse systems because nature does thrive on diversity and it provides nutrition for us, uh, keeps water in the soil and of course we're taking that carbon out of the atmosphere every time we grow trees and pulling it back into the soil which is what we need to do. And the other great area there which I talked about was in seaweed in the film. Seaweed's just an absolutely miraculous solution. It's um, not talked about often enough but we're going to hear a lot more about it in the next 10 or 15 years. Australia is about to launch its own national seaweed industry. We have so much water, but we don't have any commercial scale farms. One just about to launch in Port Lincoln, as the South Australian government there want to feed some of this seaweed, the asparagopsis that Craig looked at in the, in the series, to give it to the cows, which will lower their methane emissions. But apart from that, uh, the seaweed can be used. People are making clothes out of it. McDonald's have just ordered millions and millions of straws made of seaweed that you just put in hot water and they dissolve completely, so you can make a plastic out of them. Plus, once we plant these big seaweed forests in the ocean, they alkalise the water and create these beautiful habitats for our fish to return again. So we can just create employment, health, abundance, protein and sequester carbon at the same time if we plant these giant kelp forests. So there's lots of scientists looking into that right now. I would say, though, that ultimately I see this as an opportunity. I think a lot of the time we've told stories about climate change and we've used language around sacrifice and depravity and the things we have to give up. But... I can categorically say that there is a better world waiting for us on the other side of this climate crisis if we can get through it. Much better food and healthier foods, stronger communities, cleaner energy, 
uh, healthier water, more abundance and biodiversity, stronger communities. It's kind of what we're all after. So I think the more we can tell stories about the benefits that are awaiting us, the more we're going to motivate people and get them to take action and get involved. And we've been doing a listening exercise around Australia for the last four months, speaking to hundreds of Australians about how they've been through the bushfires, how they were during COVID, but more importantly, what kind of Australia they want as we emerge from this time. And it's been really encouraging to hear how many things we actually have in common. And people right now really are yearning for stronger communities. They want their greener hills again. They want the rivers flowing. They want action on climate change. All these things that we think we're so divided on, we actually have a lot of similarities. And I think that's something we should all celebrate, reach out to each other, have more and more conversations because it's right there and this is that opportunity. As Craig mentioned, though, we know what's blocking us. We have one of the most concentrated media landscapes in the world now. We have all sorts of issues around governance and democracy, but there are things being done in that area. In fact, I've been researching that recently and there's some extraordinary things going on around the world. Have a look at Taiwan if you get the chance, what they're doing with their democracy right now. They're live streaming policy discussions, live streaming lobbyists, which is quite incredible. And they're even putting little robots into rivers and into the skies and they're making policy based on that data. So if a river starts getting polluted or drops its level, then they'll make a policy decision based on that need. Or if the air gets too dirty, they'll make a policy on that need. So really losing all the ideology just using the best of science to make a decision to move forward, which I think is really inspiring. I think this is an extraordinary time. There's lots of big decisions to make as we emerge from COVID, but I think we've got an opportunity to fundamentally transform how we interact with each other and all of our living systems. And if we do that, then we'll deal with the climate problem and uh, much better lives for all of us. Thank you, Damon. For continuing the support of so many organisations that sequester carbon and bring the, the 20 vision to life. Our next speaker is Jess Panagiris, who you will probably remember appeared in the third episode of Fight for Planet A, helping demonstrate the rate and impact of tree clearing in Australia. Jess has over a decade's experience working across environmental advocacy, law, policy and education. At the time of filming, Jess was working for the Wilderness Society, but she has also worked for Greenpeace and is a Rhodes Scholar. Thanks for the Zoom hands, everyone, and thanks, Amy, and um, I'm calling in tonight from Gadigal land. And I guess we're here partly because climate change is bloody scary. I know that sometimes when I think about it and when my friends think about it and my family, it's very scary and it's easy to shut down and to think that it's too late and there's nothing we can do or the solutions are out of our hands. But I suppose the really good news is that there's still a pathway to meeting the goals of the Paris Agreement, to staying within 1.5 degrees, avoiding the worst impacts of global warming. And all of those scenarios that have us doing that all involve massive action in the land sector. So that's what I wanted to talk about tonight. And I will focus on the exciting opportunity that exists in the land, but I suppose first I did want to reiterate where we actually currently are in Australia and recite some of the pretty shocking statistics about where we are right now. So Australia currently has a massive deforestation problem. If you watched episode three of Fight for Planet A, you would have seen what deforestation looks like in the Australian context. So two massive bulldozers with a huge chain strung between them running through the forest and knocking down everything in its wake. And that's happening at scale across Australia such that we're now, as Damon said, we're on a global list of deforestation hotspots 
alongside places like the Amazon and Borneo. It's killing 50 million native animals in New South Wales and Queensland alone every year. It's responsible for around 10% of our greenhouse gas emissions. And it's an area the size of the MCG that we're losing every two minutes. And this is in a context where Australia's already cleared or severely degraded 50% of the forest and bushland that were here at the time of colonisation. Australia is the second worst country in the world for biodiversity loss, and we have the worst rate of mammal extinction. And some of the animals that we love the most, like the koala, are actually on track to be extinct in the wild in our lifetime if we don't change course. So that's all really bad, and the good news is we can stop it. And there's four things we need to do to both stop all the bad stuff and kickstart the good stuff. And so I just want to talk about those four things. So the first thing is we need strong state land clearing laws because that's the only thing that's worked in the past. So the reason we're currently in the terrible state we're in is because when Campbell Newman was Premier of Queensland, he undid the state's land clearing laws and we saw like a tripling of the land clearing rate almost overnight. New South Wales followed, other states have followed by weakening their laws, including Western Australia. So we actually know in the past it's worked to bring Australia's deforestation rates down and we need to do it again. And in fact, in Queensland in mid-2018, the Queensland government did pass new laws. And they did that because the community demanded it. And so one of the key things I wanted to say tonight is that as individuals, we can all use our power as citizens to demand these things of our state governments, and it works. Those laws were passed in mid-2018 and we do expect deforestation rates to come right down as a result. Related to that second, we can demand strong federal environment protection laws because most of this deforestation that's occurred in the last couple of years has all been enabled under the federal laws that we have. And again, our federal MPs work for us. So we can demand that they do better. We can say, look, these forests and bushlands, a healthy climate, a healthy landscape belongs to all of us. So it's actually your job to protect it for us. And you can demand that of your local MP. Sorry. So we've done two of the solutions. The third key solution is we can demand that the corporations that sell us food guarantee that the food they're selling us doesn't come from deforestation. And this is something that's totally within our control as consumers to demand. So in Australia, we found that the majority of deforestation and land clearing in Queensland was linked to beef production. Who's buying the beef? It's our supermarkets and our fast food chains. Who buys the beef from them? We do. So we can contact our supermarkets and our fast food chains and we can ask them to commit to zero deforestation sourcing. And that's not my idea. That's something that's happened around the world. Marks and Spencers, for example, in the UK has committed to completely eliminate deforestation from the products they sell. If Marks and Spencers can do it, Coles and Woolies can do it, McDonald's can do it, and that's something that we as consumers can demand. And I tell you what, if all of the big supermarkets and fast food chains in Australia committed to zero deforestation sourcing, we would go so far to fixing Australia's deforestation problem. So that's the third thing. And then the fourth thing is we can accelerate land restoration. And this is so exciting because in Australia, we're on a global list of places where you could see the most carbon sequestered in the land. 
globally. And if we do it right, if we sequester carbon in a way that where we're also restoring biodiverse ecosystems, we, we got Reputex, which is a carbon firm, to model the amount of land carbon that you could save if you ended land clearing and put some money into carbon sequestration. And the numbers were pretty staggering. If you just end land clearing alone and invest $5 billion in sequestration, you can save up to 850 million tonnes of carbon by 2030. If you do that in a way that's good for biodiversity, you can start to restore wildlife habitat, you can create jobs for traditional owners and local communities and landholders. And in fact, to give slightly personal story, but in 2017, my colleague Glenn Walker and I decided, we looked at this modelling and we thought, we want to see this come to life. How do we do it? And so we spent six months going and talking to land carbon experts around the country, including Professor Will Steffen, and we came up with this idea for a land restoration fund where basically governments would pay for biodiverse land sequestration that was also good for communities. We pitched the idea to the Queensland government. We talked to the Aboriginal Carbon Fund. They liked it. The Queensland government liked it. They committed to it as part of their 2017 election commitment. And I'm really pleased to say that last week, the first tranche of funding for that program went out and there's now $93 million and 680 jobs being created in projects that store carbon, protect wildlife habitat, are good for the reef. And so it's totally possible and it's happening. And it's up to all of us to use our power as citizens and consumers to force our governments and corporations to fix this and to create the kind of Australia that we want. Thanks so much, Jess. All those four points and your perspectives and insights on land use, I think we can add a few things to our list of potential actions or definite actions amongst all the things that we hope to do or are doing to care for land and culture and our earth. G'day, you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong Stay safe and, of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye. And now we're returning to the Beyond Zero Emissions discussion group based on the film Fight for Planet A. It's question time and you will hear responses from filmmakers Craig Rucastle and Damon Garrow from Jess Panagaris, from Imogen Jubb, and from Amy Meehan. So we have another question, which is from Sophia. What is your message to the CEOs of today's companies on their role, responsibility in the climate crisis? How important is their participation? I'd say to a CEO, get on board because the train's moving and everyone is shifting. A lot of companies around the world are shifting, and if you're not shifting are you going to be left behind? I think we're seeing a lot of innovations right now, measuring investment so that people can actually see investment and see its climate risk. 
And once that gets out there, that's going to have a huge impact because suddenly you're going to be exposed to how vulnerable you are, fossil fuels you're using, what your supply chains are like, and that's going to shift things very quickly. So to their credit, uh, companies are probably the ones leading the way around the world. They're doing far more than most government. You've got incredible pledges from groups like Microsoft who are not only going to offset all their emissions and go 100% renewables, they're going to offset all the emissions they've generated since the 1970s. So that's a massive statement. Amazon's doing a very similar thing. So there is great leadership being shown in that sector. It's just unfortunately that a lot of governments around the world are lagging. I would encourage anyone who works, talk to their boss about this. You can do incredible things in your own workplace. And really, as Craig showed in the series, that's all we can do is look after our own little cell in this big organism. And if we get our cell healthy and do the right thing, then it connects up with the other healthy cells and we create a healthier organism. So do that at your school, do that at your work, do that in your own home. That's really the best thing that you can do in this moment. I'd just like to add to that. Thanks, Damon, because there are certainly some corporations around the world who are really leading the way. And you're right, the transition is inevitable. Climate risk is now something that companies are having to factor into their decision making. Deforestation risk is another subset of climate risk. But I probably think we can't underestimate the degree to which not all corporations are the same and some are leading. And some are the reason that our climate politics is so bad because they've spent decades trying to prevent action on climate change because they're profiting from developing and burning fossil fuels and destroying our forests and bushland. And those corporations, they actually have to be forced to act um, because in my experience of 10 years of campaigning on these things, there's a lot of corporations that won't shift unless government creates laws that make them or unless us as consumers make them because if you're currently profiting from burning fossil fuels it's very unlikely that you'll voluntarily change course so our job as citizens and as consumers is to push our governments and our corporations to lead and to tell those corporations getting in the way of progress on climate to get out of the way and to force our governments to listen to us rather than them I totally agree, and that's why the big polluters in Australia, like the LNG companies like Chevron or Woodside and that, we have to put enormous amount of pressure on them because at the moment they're just given a free pass. It's ridiculous that 15 years ago when Chevron were building their Gorgon plant, they actually were forced to put in place some type of carbon capture and actually ameliorate some of the damage they're creating. The sad thing is that right now we see gas companies planning new LNG plants across Western Australia, across Australia, and there are no such requirements. We've gone backwards. There's no pressure on them whatsoever. They say, we'll plant a million trees over however many years, and it's absolute bugger all of the footprint. Mm-hmm. And so we need to keep that pressure up, and that's where we need to have the perspective. Like, Five for Planet A didn't just talk about what we can do. You have to put it in the context of how much can be done by those big companies and how much more pressure is needed to put on them, because they are not just make a large amount of profit, they're not just sometimes multinationals that don't have, aren't controlled a lot in this country. They're also very large donors to the major parties as well. Uh, we've seen how interconnected they are with government through things like the National COVID Commission. So there's a hell of a lot more that needs to be done to put pressure onto those companies that make change. And, you know, yeah, it's, it's good to congratulate those that are doing it. It's great to see that. But there are a few companies that really need uh, a lot more pressure to be put on them, and it's it's a tough thing to get change out of them. I think it's important to add to that too, and you're right, Craig, that certainly the companies that we've spoken to, we forget sometimes that there are good human beings within those companies, and they are sometimes stuck by the parameters of what their company's doing or the investments they've already made. And so 
I think it's important that we humanise this at all costs and we don't just blanketly say all these corporations are bad because, yes, some of them are horrific, but they also contain people in them that are aware of the destructive nature of their companies and want to get out. And I think, to your point, you know, if you look in our own country, we had virtually no lobbyists in the 1980s. We've now got more than 5,000 in Canberra. So unless we deal with that, the connection between our political system and these companies that you're mentioning, like Santos, people just need to know how closely linked they are. And unless we extricate those things and actually get those donations out of the political system, we're not going to get where we need to go because at the moment they have far, far more clout than they deserve. Can I add to that? I suppose my message for CEOs is start diversifying your portfolios, start diversifying your investments. We can take a, a top-down and bottom-up approach. And actually the courses I have been speaking about, they actually give you a really powerful sense of what consumer power is. How businesses are formed actually tells you what signals they rely on to break even, make a profit and grow. And I also think there should be more transparency because I think that all of these companies, they already have the figures. There are parts of their marketing strategy that tell you a certain message, but it's up to us to say, what land do you take up? As in, how much of it are you knocking down trees to build your factory? And all of the components that go into it, they don't go into marketing. So as consumers, it's up to us to know what our power is because a drop in profits, that is a market signal. And it is an extremely powerful market signal. So I'd encourage you to go both ways. Lobby CEOs from the top, not just about taking responsibility and planting trees, which I think is a great idea, and I love that segment on Fight for Planet A, Craig. (laughs) But I also think they need to diversify. That's another thing you could say in those letters. But then also from the bottom as a consumer, find everything out you can with as much time as you have before you buy something. So the next question is from Alphonse, and it's to Damon. How do you help the younger generation to strategise their ways to get positive results in their climate strike or anything they need to do for the government to change their ways? That's a big question. I would say don't underestimate the impact that you're having. I think that your generation's voices are being heard, the kids are being heard, even though you might not get that as a response from our Prime Minister or from other ministers. They are well aware of that pressure that's coming from the ground up. And I would encourage everyone to keep going, for parents to support them. Change historically has never been linear. There's often sort of a build-up of momentum and then there's a random tipping point, whether that's Rosa Parks on a bus or the abolitionists never would have predicted that slavery would have been ended as soon as it was. So I think we're in an extraordinary time. I think we are seeing momentum right around the world. We're seeing these kids take to the street. Yes, it's been put on hold a little bit through COVID, but I think a lot of people have taken this time to reassess what they want the world to look like on the other side of this. And so I would encourage children to keep going and to know that it's working and that at any moment in the next few years, I think, uh, we will have a tipping point. And when that happens, there'll be a flurry of initiatives and policies and activities that, that take place that will be all worth it. So keep going. So the next question is for Imogen Jubb from Dan Rotman. The work of BZD is terrific because they provide well-researched solutions. How do you get these to be better known? Well, events like this help, I think. This is probably the biggest discussion group we've had, and that's partly because we can do it live all across the country now. This used to be a small group of people who would gather at Melbourne Uni once a month. So I think seeing these kinds of transformations where we can talk to anyone in the world at the press of a button is just incredible. And those kinds of innovations are just extraordinary and we'll keep doing them more and more. I think 
that communication role is really important. That very first step I took when talking to my parents and changing their behaviour wasn't as simple as I thought it was going to be. And I think putting effort into understanding where other people are coming from and understanding their needs and their motivations and their values is a really important part of the process. So it's not just about explaining information, it's about really forming relationships and partnerships and bringing people with you so that they take their first steps in these directions as well. So the storytelling component is really important and setting the vision of what you want to achieve is really important and building those networks with people you care about and people in your community, whether that's a physical community nearby or a community of people who have similar interests, is really important. So hopefully more of that. And, yeah, again, like stories like Fight for Planet A and that introduce these concepts to people who haven't been thinking about it for decades is really important too. So the next one's for Craig from Raj Vedantam. Is a bottom-up approach like Hepburn Community Wind Park the solution to mitigate the lack of top-down policy leadership and action? If so, can we influence the other councils to invest in similar projects? Yeah, I mean, Hepburn's a great example of a community getting together and finding a solution. It's been so successful and then I got to the stage where the money they're making from the wind farms, they're reinvesting into solar panels for other parts of the community and that. So it's fantastic to see that. The interesting thing about that is that this happened in 2011 and yet there's been not many examples of that being copied. And that's one of the things that I always find intriguing. I guess it's because I think there's a lot of expertise needed in that. So getting one council to do it and then convincing the next one and making it so they can see that it's easy to do. But, I mean, that wasn't council-driven. It was kind of helped by council, but it was driven by the community there. How we can get more communities like that to do that kind of scale of effort. But even if you don't do that scale, you don't have to put up two massive wind turbines that actually make a difference. I know that in my area there's local groups that get together and raise money for putting solar panels into various places as well. Organisations like BZE and that can make a difference. Making the information available so that when communities do get together and say, we want to make a difference, they can go, well, this seems really hard. You go, no, no, it's not that hard. We've put together this, here's the information, or you talk to this person. It is really important to do that kind of stuff. And it's interesting. It's an alternative to a top-down. It's We need to kind of do all of those. When it comes to our climate response, it's much like my approach to study. Very much we've left it to the last minute. It's the night before. We really need to pull out all stops now. <laughs> you know, we've got to do everything. So it's kind of... We need top-down, we need bottom-up, we need middle-out. Uh, every type is needed at this point. So let's copy fantastic examples like Hepburn and Farbs. So um, the next one is for Damon, and it's again from Helen Kinneberg, and it says, Damon, Queensland State Government has brought in the vegetation management laws to prevent land clearing and also $500 million land restoration fund for carbon farming is that something to be applauded, or is there more they should be doing? Yeah, I, mean, I think we're at a point where any government policy that is promoting sequestration of the soil is a good thing. It's been really lacking in our country, and despite that, we're probably leading the world in terms of what our farmers are doing, the innovations that they're doing. It really is world's best practice in a lot of ways. And some of the numbers that are coming through are quite sensational in terms of how much carbon we can sequester into really integrated systems that do involve animals, crops, trees, all these things that can coexist on small patches of land is really exciting. So any way that we can incentivise that, I think it's terrific. We're going to see a carbon market emerge 
in a few years. At the moment, it's very confusing. It's sort of caught up in bureaucracy. It's very hard for farmers to make sense of it, hard for anyone to make sense of it. That's going to change. And what we're going to see, which is quite exciting, is initiatives where people will be able to track or scan their phone on a food item and they'll see not only the supply chains of where that food's come from, but they'll see the quality of the soil that that food was grown in. So suddenly we'll be paying farmers on vitamin and mineral quality of their food instead of just weight. And that is going to be transformational because then the consumer can send a signal to the farmer about the types of foods that we want and they will change their practices. And thankfully, as we're seeing, these regenerative practices now are far more lucrative than the traditional models because they're using less inputs on their land and the value of their products is higher at the market end. So it's an incredibly exciting time, I think, for revegetation and especially in our country. We have unique soils. We have unique trees. We've got incredible trees that we're not utilising, edible trees, and, and again, back to Indigenous practice. So, again, this is a really good time. So I would absolutely endorse any government that's going to support that. Uh, of course, we need more. We always need more, but hopefully it will set a precedent for other jurisdictions to follow. And can I just add that goes directly to what I spoke about earlier, which is Queensland reintroducing those deforestation laws, more technically the Vegetation Management Act in 2018, was a result of a huge community campaign over years to get land clearing laws back in Queensland. And we're waiting for the latest data, but we do expect it to have saved tens of millions of hectares of native forest and bushland. And we absolutely need those land clearing laws in place. So they are a very good thing. They're not perfect. There are some loopholes in the laws that definitely need to be closed over time, but they are a very big first step. And the $500 million pledged for the Land Restoration Fund, in my personal opinion, but obviously I'm biased because I helped design it, I think is genuinely nation-leading to tie carbon sequestration with biodiversity and community benefits, I think is the platform that it would be great to see replicated in other states and federally. And I'm going to just chime in to talk about the awareness of Indigenous carbon abatement through cultural burning. I suppose with the bushfires that have just gone and us all mourning the damage and the animals and just horrific breathing it in our noses and just knowing all of us, the fog across the land. The talks that resulted, the abatement schemes that have been studied are actually recognised carbon abatement that, that feed into the carbon market. But I'd also say, you know, we also have that question is focusing on government. And we have mentioned a couple of times about democratic systems. And I suppose I want to remind everyone that we can lobby, but the only mechanism we have to change things is once every three years. And many other countries have opportunities to raise petitions, which, you know, I'm sure everyone on this panel and, and to a our audience have signed so many petitions. And overseas, those petitions have legal standing. They have to be done within a certain number of months and they have to be a certain amount of people. But then that can go to a national vote and things can be changed. And the last time we saw that happen and perhaps felt empowered was the Marriage Equality Survey. It is good to know about all these carbon schemes, but we also need to consider the other mechanisms when government stubbornly won't lead because their business models support fossil fuels. There's a battle within all of the parties, a battle going on about how they respond to climate change issues. 
And so you don't only have power when it comes to vote as well. You also have power. Writing a letter, it's amazing. Letters have an influence. There's a lot of ways in which you can send a polite letter to your local member to asking them why there's no action. Lobbying is important and money and that kind of stuff. There is documentary filming on that exact topic, but it's not the only influence. Politicians are responding to so many different inputs. We can have an impact by communicating with them, by saying, you know, we want more action here. It's not just our vote. We have a lot of other power when it comes to the political system. And I was also just going to say that the data is evolving really rapidly, so information about these decisions you know, can be murky at the time, but I think in a few years' time it'll be much clearer what the impact of these choices are locally and you'll know, you know if your local member makes a decision, you'll know what the impacts are on your environment, on your community and on your economy. So you'll be able to hold them to account a whole lot more accessibly, I think. But, you know, it requires being informed and paying attention and getting active. How? I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Okay, on to our next question. This is from Sophia. Do you know an effective way of getting people to act with more urgency? How can we get people to panic react without scaring them? Things that I struggle the most with in trying to make this documentary because I didn't want to do a documentary that just made people fearful. And the problem is, though, that you've got so many people responding in totally different ways. You've got a group of the people that are already absolutely at panic stations and are really feeling anxiety about climate change and feeling terrible about it, and you don't want to push them further. But you've also got a group of people who are kind of like, yeah, I know climate change is coming, but it doesn't really feel like it's here yet. Eh, I'm not so sure. And I think the latest fire season has slightly changed that dynamic, but it's really hard to aim at so many different responses to that kind of thing. So... Yeah, it's it's a real problem. I think just continuing the message about the effects that we're already seeing now, it feels like we've finally got to a point where it's becoming harder for people to say that, oh, this climate change thing isn't really something. I was expecting a lot more pushback. And the pushback that was there was not generally about, oh, there's no climate change. or it's, It was less denialist. We've moved from kind of climate denial to what's called climate delay, where it's like, yeah, yeah, climate change is real, but, you know, Oh, it's really important that we just do something slowly or the economy is really important. It's about that kind of stuff. And that's actually becoming a... In some ways, it's harder to argue against because it's less airy-fairy. I mean, it's less definite. You know, you can't just go, that's climate denial, that's wrong. But in other ways, it has less strength. So I think that people are now responding quite a lot to what I see and feeling like we do need action now. And now, as, you know, as Damon said, we're kind of approaching a tipping point, I think. We're getting a lot closer to that actual moment of the big change happening. I'd just say on that note, the people who are closest to you are the people that you can influence and you can shape their actions and their opinions. So being really clear about how you feel about this to the people who are close to you is probably the best way to have influence, I think. And I would add making the solutions really concrete and the next steps really concrete because fear is really paralysing but having a solution to move forward to is very galvanising and 
it's kind of standard at this point for me to talk about the fact that the antidote to despair is action. And so whatever it is, it might be go and contact that company and ask them to commit to 100% renewable energy or zero deforestation. Or it might be you have a state election, go and get involved in trying to make sure people vote for the parties with the best climate action. Or it might be join your local climate action group to demand change of your local government. I think making clear next steps and making them fun is really important. I think this one's for you, Damon. <laughs> you did regenerative bag in 2040. From the research that I've done and various organisations, the UNFAO project drawdown is that absolutely we need to reduce our meat consumption. We have ridiculous amounts of meat that we are clearing land at a fast rate for that meat. What is emerging now, though, are different practices that are able to sequester huge amounts of carbon. In fact, sequester far more carbon than the methane that's being emitted. And that's by carefully managing livestock in a very careful way where they eat certain parts of grasslands and you move them off that bit of grass. The roots grow back quickly and sequester that carbon and put it in the soil. But that alone is not a huge sequesterer. But once you start adding these other species in, there's a practice called intensive silvopasture, for example, where you take livestock, you plant a legume uh, in there as well, which is a nitrogen fixer, and you put trees in that system as well. The stats there are quite stunning in the sense that you can actually use the same amount of land that a feedlot uses because they also are growing grains to feed those cows, but you're producing much healthier meat and you're sequestering carbon. Now, we don't have enough land for the whole world to be eating that type of meat, but there are going to be people that can eat that meat. It's much better for them if they want to, but absolutely I think there's unanimous agreement that we need to shut factory farming and not have feedlots for our cattle anymore, but if people are willing to pay for it, there might be types of regenerative meat that are actually beneficial to the planet, believe it or not, but it's not going to be readily available. There are certain lands around the world that aren't amenable to crops that livestock would be used and they can sequester soil into that. But again, it's very careful because it's not just say that we can all keep the clear, better labelled meat in the future. It's going to be labelled as regenerative organic. There's labels emerging from America right now, but it sits in a grey area because absolutely we need to reduce our meat. The type of meat we're eating is terrible. Even these fake meats, to be honest, we've got to be careful there. They're a processed food. Some of them are grown in labs. They're finding even that they need a lot of antibiotics to keep the, the cells alive, which aren't good for us in any way. And even the sort of uh, impossible meats, they're using huge amounts of land, still growing crops, still using chemicals on that land. But I think the best bet to do is to reduce your meat consumption. Uh, estimates have it about 50 grams a day. You can do that if you can make it regenerative. They are starting to appear. You can find them, biodynamic meats and these other clearly labelled meats. That would be the way to go, but they are a bit more expensive. Oh, well, I, I guess I would add that certainly from the perspective of storing forest carbon and bushland carbon and soil carbon, what's important is the deforestation footprint of the food. So obviously beef in Australia, the Brazilian Amazon, it's beef and also soy. And so I think it's just really important that we look at the way the food is produced and whether or not mass deforestation is linked to that commodity rather than fixating on the particular commodity. So that's just what I wanted to contribute from a deforestation perspective. We'll go around now and get everyone to, to say a concluding remark about what you would like to round up about tonight and about your, your work. Let's start with Imogen. I have to say I hope that this in some small way helps motivate you to take the next step in your path on this journey because if we're all stepping on this together, it'll 
get us there. And it's really great to build the community of people involved. Go ahead, Damon. Thanks for having me today and thanks for everyone who's joined this conversation. I guess in my work I just try to reframe this as an opportunity and I feel quite privileged to be alive in this moment. I think we have an opportunity to change our system and change how we interact with our living systems and not many humans have had that opportunity right through history. So I think be grateful for that you're around in this moment. You're watching an energy transition happen, but you're also going to see one happen in agriculture and other industries as well. And that's, that's a wonderful thing to be alive through. So keep up the hope. Try and find the good stories. Uh, our media is cr- crowded with all the negative stories, but that sells. Outrage sells. That's the world we're in. Go beyond that mainstream and look in the shadows. That's where the hope is, and that's where all the people are that are doing amazing things. So um, keep your mind clean by doing that. Don't get it sucked in these other narratives. Who'd like to go next? Craig or Jess? I would sum up by saying ending deforestation in Australia is one of the cheapest, easiest, fastest ways to cut our emissions and then starting to restore the Australian landscape is this incredible opportunity to save our beautiful wildlife, restore landscapes and support traditional owners and landholders around the country. Um, And the solutions are totally there. They're available now and we should just get on with it. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting actually hearing Jess say that because we spend a lot of time focusing some of the things like we talk a lot more about our flights, for instance, and land clearing is probably four to five times more of an impact in Australia than our flights. We often don't talk about things that have the biggest impact. Realistically, if you call up your energy provider tomorrow and say, I want to go 100% green power, it might slightly increase your bill, might, might increase it like a wine bottle a month, something like that. That'll have a hell of a lot more impact a lot of the other things that we spend a lot of time debating and that kind of stuff. So, look, find the ways in which you can achieve change. And I'm not saying that we can only do it by ourselves. We're not saying we can do it as individuals. or not, not even saying we can just do it as communities, but we need those kind of groups to get together and work hard because cumulatively that makes a massive effect on its own. And secondly, it does have a big political effect as well. It does make it more likely that we see political change happening from the top uh, to help us deal with this problem, which we really need to get onto. we put it off a little bit too long. Thanks, guys. So I suppose my final remarks are a bit of a shout-out to my mob in Tamworth and Bendemir, um, and to ask people to try to, to cross cultures, whether it's Indigenous particularly, but also, obviously, because I'm biased, but also multicultural views because we actually need as much innovation and as much adaptation and there are so many solutions across cultures and learn as much as you can about the details just don't don't take that this is bad this is good find out why because then you'll learn about the science and follow Damon and Craig's example and go out of your comfort zone and learn about a field that perhaps you didn't study and together there is so much room for hope and so much room for, for great things. So it's been a real pleasure to have this chat. I don't know about everyone else, but it, it's wonderful to see these yarns and to see these stories being told. So from Beyond Zero, thank you for coming along. Please keep in touch. Follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn. I think we're on Instagram and the wonderful lady behind the scenes, Imogen uh, Butler, uh, and our comms team handle all of that. We'd love to hear from you. And keep the energy going. Thanks tonight to the Beyond Zero Emissions Discussion Group. You heard Amy Meehan, Craig Rucastle, Damon Garreau, Jess Panagiris and Imogen Jubb. 
Action this week is to go to seedmob.org and sign their petition about the Torres Strait Islands. We'll do a show on this later, but they are fighting, not drowning. So seedmob.org. Thanks to Andy Britt on the podcasts. My name is Vivian Langford. Good night and good luck. We'll go out with a song by David Rovix. He's living up in Oregon where the bushfires are terrifying everyone. My heart goes out to him as he plays another game of Scrabble with the bags packed and ready to flee. It's called The Flames of History. And you can get a good picture from David Rovick's weekly podcast. You might like to look it up. He says the fires have exposed the corruption and incompetence in their society. Their forests, like ours, have been made vulnerable by reckless logging. And he also talks about people living in those fire-prone areas because housing in the big cities is unaffordable. It's not too far from the situation here. So David Rovix, The Flames of History. Play another game of Scrabble, put the kids to bed. Marvel with them at the way the sky is turning red. Keep close tabs on the news where the fires have arrived. Bags packed and ready if we need to run for our lives. See the world darken in the middle of the day. Hear the stories of the people whose towns were burned away. Tens of thousands driving, obeying the mandate To move faster than the fire and evacuate To a parking lot in Clackamas, camping in the smoke Wondering what remains unburnt, unbroke If things had been unpredictable, they just got even more As fire burns the world from the mountains to the shore Will this place exist tomorrow? It's just a mystery As we're living through the flames of history Play another game of Scrabble Rallies have to wait Even the most dedicated Aren't out to demonstrate Maybe packing their belongings Or helping others do the same Almost missing all the tear gas Before the fires came They call this the city of bridges But if we get the cue To evacuate due north There are only two Will this place exist tomorrow? It's just a mystery As we're living through the flames of history Another game of Scrabble Follow every tweet Of anyone who might be Vaguely related to the beat Say sorry to the kids For always looking at my phone This alerts app doesn't work No message and no tone If you don't have a way to fly There's nowhere much to go Just look out at the horizon Hope not to see it glow Will this place exist tomorrow? It's just a mystery As we're living through the flames of history
play another game of Scrabble. Put the kids to bed. You're listening to Radio 3CR. I'm Ian Angus, longtime community radio broadcaster in Canada and uh, editor of the website climateandcapitalism.com. Play another game of Scrabble. Put the kids to bed.